Hello, this is Book Club Cheats, a podcast for book clubbers who just can't seem to find the time to read. I'm your host, Lippy Turner-Roman, and today we will be talking about The Invisible Life of Adi LaRue. I love fairy tales. I think we all do. Such simple and magical stories on the surface. Fairy tales are cautionary tales with many layers, dark and light spun together with wonder and magic and inhabited by archetypes that break or push the boundaries of prohibitions. The Invisible Life of Adi LaRue by V.E. Schwab is a modern fairy tale. The cautionary message it tries to convey is, be very careful what you wish for. In terms of genre, it's a fantasy supernatural tale. And the 444 page story is constructed of seven parts. But in essence, it's fundamentally two historical moments in the life of our protagonist, Adi LaRue. The chapters skip back and fro in time between New York in 2014 and the backstory of Adi's 300-year journey from a provincial village in France to New York. It may appear confusing, but it's a very simple to keep track of. Adeline, or Adi LaRue, is a clever, independent and stubborn girl. She has red hair and seven freckles, scattered like a band across her nose and cheeks. It's 1698, and the qualities Addie has are not necessarily those that 17th century society treasures in females. Addie and her woodworker father go to market to sell his wares. Addie is a dreamer, and she wants to see the world far beyond her provincial French village. She's enthralled by the diversity of goods and people in the market, and... Addie buys a journal of parchment and charcoal which she fills with drawings of all her yearnings and a stranger appears in the parchment. She draws him over and over again. He has black curls, green eyes, a strong jaw. Addie imagines him beside her. He tells her stories of the world outside her village. He tells her in her imagination that he'll show her the world, that she will see it all. As Addie grows up, the constraints and social mores for females in the 17th century become more evident. She's expected to stay at home and get married, and Addie doesn't understand, or really doesn't want to understand, how her life needs to or will change as she grows into womanhood. Addie wants to belong to no one but herself, and she's particularly drawn to Estelle, a herbalist and a midwife, who the rest of her family thinks a little bit cuckoo. Estelle still worships the old gods, gods who are everywhere in nature and they are greedy and mercurial. To ask a favour from the old gods, Estelle tells Addie, you have to humble yourself, give them gifts and praise, you have to be willing to pay the price they ask, but most of all, you have to be careful what you wish for, and no matter how desperate or dire your need, you must never ever pray to the gods that answer after dark. Well, you can see where this is leading, right? Addie's friend Isabel gets married, and within a very short time, ages 10 years, burdened by marriage, children, work and labour. Addie resists marriage, but at 26, her parents and her community force her to marry Roger, a new widower with small children who just need a mother. Addie is frantic. There'll be no lover with green eyes, no Paris, no boats to faraway lands. On the way to the wedding, Addie runs to the woods to beg the gods to help her. Addie gives the gods her wooden ring that her father carved for her at her birth. Desperate, she keeps praying with her eyes closed 
and doesn't realise that the sun has gone down. The darkness answers her prayers. Darkness comes to Addie as her dream man. Before her is the lover she drew constantly, green eyes and black curls. He asks why she summoned him. Page 46. I do not want to marry. She felt so small when she says it. Her whole life feels small, and she sees that judgment reflected in the God's gaze, as if to say, is that all? And no, it's more than that. Of course it's more. I do not want to belong to someone else, she says with sudden vehemence. The words are a door flung wide, and now the rest pour out of her. I do not want to belong to anyone but myself. I want to be free, free to live and to find my own way, to love, to be alone, to be at least. It is my choice, and I'm so tired of not having choices, so scared of the years rushing past beneath my feet. I do not want to die as I have lived, which is no life at all. I... The shadow cut her off, impatient. What use is it to tell me what you do not want? His hands glided through her hair, comes to rest at the back of her neck, drawing her close. Tell me instead what you want most. She looked up. I want a chance to live. I want to be free. She thinks of the years slipping by. Blink and half your life is gone. I want more time. He considers her, those green eyes changing shade, now spring grass, now summer leaf. How long? Her mind spins. Fifty years, one hundred. Every number feels too small. Ah, says the darkness, reading her silence. You do not know. Again the green eyes shifted, darkened. You ask for time without limit. You want freedom without rule. You want to be untethered. You want to live exactly as you please. Yes, says Adeline breathless with want, but the shadow's expression sours. His hand drops from her skin, and then he is no longer there, but lean against a tree several strides away. I decline, he says. Adeline draws back as if struck. What? She has come this far, has given everything she has. She made her choice. She cannot go back to that world, that life, that present and past without her future. You cannot decline. One dark brow lifts, but there is no amusement in that face. I am not some genie bound to your whim. He pushes off the tree. Nor am I some petty forest spirit, content with granting favours for mortal trinkets. I am stronger than your god and older than your devil. I am the darkness between the stars and the roots beneath the earth. I am promise and potential. And when it comes to playing games, I define the rules, I set the pieces, and I choose when to play. And tonight, I say no. Adeline! 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 Beyond the edge of the woods, the village lights are closer. There are torches in the field. They are coming for her. The shadow looks over his shoulder. Go home, Adeline. Go back to your small life. Why, she pleads, grabbing his arm, why do you refuse me? He brushes his hand along her cheek, the gesture soft and warm as heart smoke. I am not in the business of charity. You ask too much. How many years until you're sated? How many until I get my due? No, I make deals with endings, and yours has none. She'll come back to this moment a thousand times. 
in frustration and with regret, in sorrow and self-pity and unbridled rage, she'll come to face the fact that she cursed herself before he ever did. But here and now, all she can see is the flickering torchlights of Hulon and the green eyes of the stranger she once dreamed of loving and the chance to escape slipping away with his touch. You want an ending, she says. Then take my life when I am done with it. You can have my soul when I don't want it any more. The shadow tips his head, suddenly intrigue, a smile, just like the smile in her drawings, askew and full of secrets, crosses his mouth. And then he pulls her to him, a lover's embrace, his smoke and skin, air and bone. And when his mouth presses against hers, the first thing she tastes is the turning of the seasons, the moment when dusk gives way to night. Then his kiss deepens, his teeth skim her bottom lip, and there is pain in the pleasure, followed by the copper taste of blood on her tongue. Done, whispers the god against her lips, and then the world goes black, and she is falling. Bargain sealed, Addie reawakens to find that no one remembers her. It's as if she was never born. Her parents don't recognize her. When confronted, they say they've never had any children and think she's a real mad woman. Estelle won't let her cross her front door, thinking that she's a malevolent spirit. Half horrified, Addie realizes that as soon as people step away from her, they forget her, forget that they ever met her, out of sight, out of mind, as it were. All that is familiar and dear to her has forgotten her. In her new life, Addie escapes death, but not suffering. Addie will have a painful and lonely existence. She finds that she can't get hurt physically, doesn't feel the cold, doesn't age, only her eyes mark the change in time. She cannot write or say her name or leave a mark. She can't hold on to anything, uh, cannot accumulate any kind of material. It just slips away from her. The only thing that stays with her is her wooden ring. No matter how hard she tries to get rid of it, it simply returns to her. Addie goes on to live like a fugitive in other people's homes and learns to be a skillful thief. Before Addie leaves her village, she slips into her father's workshop and steals a carving, a bird with a broken wing. Addie holds on to it like a talisman. It's a reminder of what she's loved and lost. She slips away from Villon and the life that she once had. Addie walks to Paris. She's dazed and confused. Even though she's dreamed of seeing Paris, Addie initially concentrates on just surviving. In the midst of the plague, she loses the precious bird her father carved. Addie is also forced to prostitute herself on the Paris docks for money. But after a year in Paris, Addie starts to game the system, finds a rhythm to work within her new constraints. She plies punters with laudanum, learns the art of stealing dresses and food, just try the dress on, and when the assistant turns around and forgets Addie, she just walks out. Addie also teaches herself to read, but not write, since her writing just vanishes. Darkness periodically visits her. He wants to know if she's ready to give him her soul. He asks why carry on when there's no reprieve. The pain and loneliness of knowing her life is nothing will crush her, so why not end it all now? Give him her soul. Addie refuses every time. Even though darkness is in the form of her dream lover, Addie knows that it's only a mask, 
that beneath it is a thing that is shapeless, menacing, and monstrous. We know this when Luke takes her along to claim Beethoven's soul and reveals the empty darkness. She calls darkness Luke to make things easier for herself. At the heart of the invisible life of Adi Leroux is the relationship between Adi and Luke. The other lovers in the book are just background noise. Luke and Adi dance around each other and they have a strange convoluted relationship. It's love, hate, flirtatious, needy, menacing, competitive, and they feed off each other. The longer Addie holds on to her soul, the more intrigued Luke becomes, the bigger the challenge, the game. Luke calls Addie my Addie, and there's a strong sexual tension and seeming affection. There's also obsession in this relationship. Addie repeatedly asks Luke if he misses her when he's apart from her. Luke tells her he's always with her. He also tells her that he'll come to her if she puts on the wooden ring. Luke fundamentally is the only constant in a very fast and ever-changing world for Addie. Lovers and acquaintances only know her for an evening, forgetting her once out of sight. Only Luke popping into her life over the 300-year time span of the narrative is a sure, real thing. Luke is the only creature that wholly knows her and her history and seemingly understands her. Everyone else passes on and forgets her. Addie meets and spends an idyllic day with Remy Laurent. After making love, a bewildered Remy doesn't remember Addie the next morning, thinking she's a prostitute and gives her money. This pattern of seemingly bonding with another human only to awaken up the next morning, forgotten, is another constant in Addie's new life. A template emerges, a life straight out of Groundhog Day. Addie encounters people, finds a connection and attraction to them, spends an interesting, engaging, good time with them. And then once out of Addie's sight or after they go to sleep, they forget her and their time with Addie. Addie builds a fragile relationship with each person of the moment, if you will, improving each encounter with all the accumulated knowledge from past meetings. Addy basically creates, recreates relationships, polishing and reliving them every night. I mean, she knows everything about each person, what they like, what they hate, their dreams and aspiration. She's the perfect date. And so with each new encounter with them, Addy is able to draw the person closer and closer. Each lover has a deja vu moment. Addie is attracted to artistic individuals, painters, scholars, artists, musicians, writers and sculptures of either sex. She can no longer draw or leave a mark or create, but she serves as a muse to all her lovers, male and female. Once the inspired piece of art is completed, reflecting a mysterious woman with red hair and crescent freckles, Addie moves on. Each section or part of the book begins with information regarding one of these Addie-inspired masterpieces. Addie returns to her village three times. The first time, it's changed, but still recognisable. She finds that her father died a year after she left, and Estelle is dead. Addie plants a sapling on Estelle's grave. She finds her mother is still alive. Page 218 Who's there? The woman's voice is brittle, thin, but it still lands like a stone in Addie's chest. It knocks the air away, and she's sure that even if she were mortal, her mind softened by time, she would still remember this, the sound of her mother's voice. The door groans open, and there she is, 
withered like a plant in winter, gnarled fingers clutching a threadbare shawl. She is old, anciently so, but alive. Do I know you? asks her mother, but there is no hint of recognition in her voice, only the doubt of the old and the unsure. Addie shakes her head. Afterwards, she'll wonder if she should have answered yes, if her mother's mind, emptied of memory, could have made room for that one truth, if she might have invited her daughter in, to sit beside the hearth and share a simple meal, so that when Addie left, she would have something to hold on to, beside the version of her mother shutting her out. But she doesn't. She tries to tell herself that this woman stopped being her mother when she stopped being her daughter. But, of course, it doesn't work that way. And yet, it must. She had already grieved, and though the shock of the woman's face is sharp, the pain is shallow. What do you want? demands Marthe Leroux. But there is another question she can't answer, because she doesn't know. She looks past the old woman into the dim hall that used to be her home. And only then does a strange hope rise in her chest. If her mother is alive, then maybe, maybe, but she knows. Knows by the cobwebs in the workshop door. The dust on the half-finished bowl. Knows by the weary look in her mother's face. And the dark, dishevelled state of the cottage behind her. I'm sorry, she says, backing away. And if the woman does not ask what for, only stares unblinkingly as she goes... The door groans shut, and Addie knows as she walks away that she will never see her mother again. Addie finally leaves Paris during the French Revolution. She travels to Italy, Germany, England and Spain. As the First World War breaks out, Addie goes to America. In America, Luke consumes her and their relationship moves onto a different footing. Luke and Addie have sex. Addie falls in love. In fact, Addie falls in and out of love with Luke countless times. From the 1950s to the 1980s, they live together in New Orleans on Bourbon Street. Addie feels almost normal. She knows that this domesticity can't last. She also knows that Luke's face and flesh are a disguise. But Addie doesn't hate him anymore, since Luke is the only one that remembers her. She tells herself that what she shares with Luke is not love. Addie also starts to feel the space between humans and herself. And as Luke points out to her, she hasn't been human for a very long time. She sees Luke take the soul of a woman in New Orleans. And the woman doesn't cower and scream like Beethoven did. She's ready and she's tired and she's, she's accepting of her fate. Just like Addie, but... Just as Addie is tired, Addie doesn't accept her fate. Addie won't give in. Addie sees Luke as he really is at that time when he blots out the woman. Luke asks Addie to surrender and Addie realises that it's all just a game to him, that he doesn't care for her. They part and the house on Bourbon Street burns down. We meet Addie creating and recreating relationships in New York in 2014. 300 years since the day of her bargain with Luke. Addie steals a book from a bookstore and she does a lot of book stealing. She always returns the book though after reading them. Addie returns to the bookstore and tries to hustle the manager, Henry Strauss, into exchanging the stolen book for something else. Henry tells Addie she has some nerve trying to return a book she stole from him. Henry tells Addie he remembers her from yesterday. Wow! 
After 300 years of forgetting her, someone finally remembers Addie. That's the only thing Addie can hear. I remember you, I remember you, I remember you. Her whole world shifts. Addie is convinced that somehow Luke has missed a detail in the universe when preparing his magic, that he doesn't know that someone can remember her. She hugs her secret gleefully. Okay, spoilers ahead. Not only does Henry remember her, but also Addie can tell him her f name. Addie tells Henry all about the bargain she made with Luke and narrates her life story, which Henry promptly records in his journals. Henry and Addie become a couple and fall in love. Henry has a dreamy, melancholy air about him, but he also has a pent-up kinetic energy vibe about him. It's almost as if the guy doesn't have a minute to waste. Henry, like most of Addie's previous lovers, have black hair, curls and green eyes, just like Luke. He also has a tight group of friends that gravitate around him. Bee, a graduate student cycling through dissertation topics, and Robbie, a former boyfriend who is annoyingly jealous of Henry's subsequent relationships, even though he broke up with Henry. Addie keeps getting reintroduced to them as they keep forgetting her at dinners and coffee shops. It's quite wearing. Henry's been depressed and in a semi-destructive mode since his fiancée ditched him. Feeling unloved, Henry can't seem to find his place in the world. He's interested in so many things and master of none. Henry starts things only to lose interest. Henry is also crushed under the weight of parental expectations and sibling excellence. His brother is a doctor and his sister is a famous artist. Wow, really hard to be here. The magical thing about Henry though is people are attracted to him, fawn over him, want to be in his company, offer him positions he's not qualified for, ask him out to dinner and coffee. They just want to be with him, like bees to a honeypot. Everyone seems to love him. This only makes Henry madder and sadder. Things are going too well. You knew that, right? Luke turns up, and it's almost as if Luke is jealous of Henry. But things are not quite so simple. You knew that, right, too. Henry also has a story to tell Addie of being so depressed, of feeling unloved when his fiancée broke up with him, of a rainy night when he felt like jumping off the roof of his apartment building, of dreaming of a man with dark hair and green eyes offering him love from all in return for his soul in a year's time. And Henry, so in the depths of his misery, saying yes. People are drawn to Henry, love Henry, not because they want to or by their own inclination, but because they are bewitched by Luke. Addie pleads with Luke to save Henry. Luke asks her to choose. He can take Henry's soul or someone else's soul. Addie realises that far from missing the detail of Henry, Luke has meticulously planned all of this to finally have her soul. Luke tells Addie he needs her as much as she needs him and he loves her as much as she loves him. Addie tells Henry she's exchanging her soul for his as a thank you for seeing her and for loving her, that he needs to find people who see him. She makes Henry promise to remember her. Henry writes a book about Addie's life called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. The dedication page says, I remember you. He leaves the author page blank. It becomes an instant bestseller. Henry plans to travel the world, listen to P 
people's stories and make some of his own. And Addy? You knew Addy and Luke would end up together, right? Page 439. And then Luke is there. His arms fold around her shoulders and she leans back into his chest. They do fit together. They always have, though she wonders even now if it's simply the nature of what he is. Smoke expanding to fill whatever space it's given. His eyes drop to the book in her hands. Her name splashed across the cover. How clever you are, he says, murmuring the words into her skin. But he does not seem angry. They can have the story, he says, so long as I have you. She twists in his arms to look at him. Luke is beautiful when he's gloating. He shouldn't be, of course. Arrogance is an unattractive trait, but Luke wears it with all the comfort of a tailored suit. He glows with the light of his own work. He's so used to being right, to being in control. His eyes are a bright, triumphant green. 300 years she's had to learn the colour of his moods. She knows them all by now, the meaning of every shade, knows his temper, wants and thoughts just by studying those eyes. She marvels that in the same amount of time he never learned to read her own. Or perhaps he saw only what he expected, a woman's anger and her need, her fear and hope and lust, and all the simpler, more transparent things. But he never learnt to read her cunning or her cleverness, never learnt to read the nuances of her actions, the subtle rhythms of her speech. And as she looks at him, she thinks of all the things her eyes would say, that he has made a grand mistake, that the devil is in the details, and that he has overlooked a crucial one, that semantics may seem small, but he taught her once that words were everything, and when she carved the terms of her new deal, when she traded her soul for herself, she did not say forever, but as long as you may want me by your side. And those are not the same thing at all. If her eyes could speak, they would laugh. They would say he's a fickle god, and long before he loved her, he hated her. He drove her mad with his flawless memory and he became a student of his magnificence, a scholar of his cruelty. She had 300 years to study and she'll make a masterpiece of his regret. Perhaps it will take 20 years, perhaps it will take a 100. But he is not capable of love and she will prove it. She will ruin him, ruin his idea of him. She will break his heart and he will come to hate her once again. She will drive him mad, drive him away, and then he will cast her off. And she will finally be free. Addie dreams of telling Luke these things. Just to see the shade it turns his eyes, the green of being bested, the green of forfeit and of losing. But he's taught her anything. It's patience. So Addie says nothing of the new game, the new rules, the new battle that's begun. She only smiles and sets the book back on its shelf and follows him out into the dark. I really like the invisible life of Addie Leroux. The open-ended ending was excellent. It's wildly entertaining and an easy read. My niece finished it in one sitting. I, however, read it over two nights. 
This was my first book by Schwab and she is a widely popular author with both young adults and adults alike. And it's easy to see why. She had me hooked from the very first page. Schwab's writing is lush, lyrical, emotional and very atmospheric. It's really quite lovely to read, although it may be too poetic for some people. The concept of the book also is fascinating and it's conceptually rich with its fairy tale structure. However, unlike fairy tales, Adi LaRue is very character driven and so the narrative takes some time to develop which can be problematic for some people. The book has a slower pacing. In comparison to parts one and two, parts two and three uh, felt especially slow. And in all honesty, by the time I got to the wonderful ending, I felt the book went on a little too long. It could have been a little bit tighter, but that's probably a little quibble. There's also quite a lot of repetition in the work, maybe harking back to the fairy tales. At first, I didn't notice or maybe didn't care, but halfway through the book, I did get a little weary of rereading lines about green eyes, dark hair, and bridges of freckles. Additionally, Addie's story with its themes of loss, grief, feminism, independence, loneliness, and really being seen by others, and her relationship with Luke or darkness was so intriguing. I wish the book had dealt with this pair more rather than spending a fairly large chunk with Henry and his backstory. However, Schwab does an excellent job portraying Henry's depression, his sense of loss, love, um, grief, and you know, over a sense of frustration. I especially felt Henry's pain and his sorrow of never being enough and being and disappointing his loved ones. Which takes me to another point. What was it about Henry, besides his ability to remember her, that attracted Eddie? I mean, Henry was nice, but I wondered if Luke was making her fall for Henry, if Luke had sort of bewitched her love for Henry. It was interesting the juxtaposition of Luke and Addie, light and dark, male and female, pre-natural force and enlightenment. Uh, Luke is the knight, the darkling, taking away souls, his petty and possessive, controlling, while Addie is the muse, light, open, free-spirited, adventurous. Luke is referred to as a pre-natural uh, force and he notes that he's older than the devil, so maybe nurture and man need one another, just as Addie and Luke can't seem to live without one another. I did wonder if Luke, if Luke wasn't the devil, and in fact he had some very undevil-like heuristics such as hating war, then why was he in the business of harvesting souls? What did he do with them? Um, I also was interesting noting the unequal power differential in their relationship between Luke and Addie. Um, what does that say about sort of man and nature then perhaps? I wish the book had spent a little more time exploring the history that Addie witnessed. The French Revolution, new social and economic movements, the birth of new cities and all the historical figures that she must have met and witnessed such as Voltaire. But I suppose this is Addie's story and not the story of the last 300 years. What I loved about this book was the exploration of memory and the human need to remember and be remembered. Addie becomes a shadow as the people around her have short-term memory loss in relation to her. And this loss of memory creates a painful, lonely existence for Addie. Addie blossoms and falls in love with Henry because he remembers her. 
Luke collects souls from Beethoven, Joan of Arc, Sinatra, all greats who ultimately want to be remembered. So remembering and being remembered obviously has a fundamental place in the human psyche. Now for some book club questions. Addie wanted independence and free will to make her own choices. Why do you think these traits frightened her parents and her community? Addie tells Henry to find people who see him. What do you think Addie means? Do you have people in your life that see you? Addie comes to accept that she is no longer human. What does being human mean? Addie's life becomes constrained by the expectations placed on women in the 17th century. Do these same constraints exist today? What constraints are placed on women today? The invisible life of Adi LaRue betrays the power and the importance of art. What does art mean to you and how do you experience art in your daily life? The Invisible Life of Adi LaRue is a standalone book. But Schwab has many trilogies to her name and I'm putting her best-selling villains trilogy on my to-read list pretty soon. I hope you get a chance to read The Invisible Life of Adi LaRue. Bye-bye.